Well, let me start again by saying a very uh, big thank you for having me and my uh, family here with you this weekend. I'm very grateful for the invitation to come and share with you. Great. And uh, we've been really looking forward to coming and being part of your weekend this weekend. We don't really have castles in Australia, so our location this weekend makes it especially exciting for us and particularly for my children. Uh, it really is a privilege to open God's Word with you this weekend, and, and more than anything, I'm, I'm full of anticipation about how God will speak to us over these next couple of days as we explore the second half of Genesis together. I'm not sure how familiar you are with Genesis, but I suspect most of us are more familiar with the first half than we are with the second. As I said earlier, chapters 1 to 11 in particular are often read and, and preached on, and, and rightly so, they're incredibly important chapters in understanding the story of the Bible and the story of the human race. And yet chapters 12 through to 50 also have lots to teach us. And I suspect many of you know Genesis 12 to 50 is basically the story of Abraham and his descendants. Uh, It tells us how God made some extraordinary promises to a man named Abraham. Uh, The promise to, to multiply his descendants promise to give them a land to call their own, uh, the promise to make them a famous nation and the promise to bless them so abundantly that blessing from God would overflow from them to all the nations of the earth. They really were stunning promises and having described those promises to us, the rest of Genesis really tells the story of how God's promises are being kept as he works in the lives of Abraham's children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And this weekend we're picking up the story where Abraham's grandsons come in. And we're going to look at some key chapters in the second half of the book together, following the story through to the end of Genesis where we hear about the great-grandsons of Abraham. But we're jumping in at chapter 25, verse 19, where the author introduces us to the account of Abraham's son Isaac. Uh, In actual fact, the narrative of Genesis has already told us quite a bit about Isaac up to this point. Really what follows is the story of Isaac's sons, Jacob and Esau. But this introduction is is a formula that the author of Genesis uses to mark each new section. And it's significant that the account of Isaac, as he calls it there in chapter 25, verse 19, is the story of his sons. You see, this is how Old Testament people thought, the story of a man is known by how his children live. And so it is here. And our plan for the weekend is to look at two passages about Jacob and Esau in our first two talks tonight and tomorrow morning, and then to jump ahead uh, to chapter 37, where we'll look at two passages at the start of the narrative about Joseph. And then in our final talk, we'll jump again ahead to the final chapter of Genesis just to see how the story ends. So with that little uh, introduction to the weekend out of the way, I want us to turn our attention to this first passage that we're considering this weekend, chapter 25, verses 19 to 34. And I might read it to us and then pray for us and then uh, we'll think a bit further. So let me read from chapter 25, verse 19. This is the account of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel the Aramean from Padan Aram, and sister of Laban the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. 
The Lord answered his prayer and his wife Rebecca became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man staying among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew, I'm famished. That is why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. Father in heaven, we give you our very humble thanks for this weekend and the privileges it contains. I want to thank you for the privilege of gathering with brothers and sisters here in Northern Ireland in this wonderful location and for the great honour of opening the scriptures and proclaiming them. And we thank you for the great privilege each of us have to sit at your feet this weekend and to listen to you. And we pray that as we hear your words in this ancient book that they would be full of life to us, that we would see your truth in them and that that truth would reshape our thinking and our living, filling us with joy because of all you've done for us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I suspect most of us here are aware that the Old Testament part of the Bible is largely a record of the history and the literature of God's people, the Israelites. But of course, Israel was not the only nation in the ancient world. There were many other nations in existence during those centuries, and whilst they're not the focus of the Old Testament, they are occasionally referred to in some way. One such nation was Edom. Edom was a rival of Israel's throughout most of the Old Testament era. The Edomites, for example, refused to allow Israel to pass through their territory when they were travelling from Egypt towards the Promised Lands. Sometimes, even after Israel were in the Promised Land, the Edomites attacked them or rebelled against them. Moreover, when Israel were captured by the Babylonians in the early 6th century BC, the Edomites cheered the Babylonians on and even lent a hand, the Bible tells us. And for that reason, when the later Old Testament prophets spoke, they often promised that judgment would come upon the Edomites Israel and Edom didn't really get on. They were enemies and God promised a very different fate for them both. Israel would ultimately be blessed, but Edom would ultimately be destroyed. 
Well, if we were evaluating the differences and the conflict between two modern nations, we could troll back through the history of those two nations to see the things that have produced the differences and contributed to the conflict. There are reasons for the differences and the conflict between nations, and those reasons often can be explained. And so too with the differences and the conflict between Israel and Edom. An historical investigation reveals certain things, significant things, and the reasons for the differences and the conflict can be explained. And it all starts in Genesis chapter 25. Because these two nations are the descendants of two brothers, twin brothers, Jacob and Esau. The Israelites, of course, are the descendants of Jacob. The Edomites are the descendants of Esau. Tonight, what I want to do with you is look at Genesis 25 and to ask this question. What explanation does this chapter give for the long-term differences and conflicts between the nation of Israel and the nation of Edom? And along the way, what I think we'll discover is that there's lots more in this chapter than simply some ancient historical explanations. In this chapter, we also learn some things about ourselves and about the differences between people everywhere in the eternal purposes of God. So as we turn to the text, we're reminded again that the, the meta-narrative here, the big story, is the story of God and his covenant with Abraham. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, God had made some very grand promises to Abraham that he would receive overflowing blessing from God, that his people would one day have a land to call home, and that his descendants would be as many as the stars in the night sky, as, as numerous as the grains of sand on the seashore. And you might recall that when God first made that promise to Abraham, it seemed very, very unlikely indeed. Abraham and his wife Sarah were well past childbearing age, and that's really an understatement. Imagine your oldest surviving grandparents, if you have one, and imagine them either getting pregnant or getting someone pregnant. Or something you want to think about for too long, I don't think. <laughs> but that's, that's the kind of territory Abraham and Sarah were in, although probably older. But despite it being improbable at best, chapter 21 of Genesis recorded for us the birth of Isaac, a son born to Abraham and Sarah. And it's this Isaac and his descendants who are the focus of these next 10 chapters or so. And verses 19 to 20 here remind us of Isaac's marriage to Rebekah. And then we're told that Rebekah's prospects of continuing Abraham's family tree were just as unlikely, uh, unlikely as Sarah's had been. So verse 21, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. But yet again, God does what seems humanly impossible and he grants the gift of a child in order that his promise to Abraham might be fulfilled. So we read in the second half of verse 21, his wife Rebekah became pregnant. This time though, it's not a child, it's children. God is fulfilling his promises. And delighted as she no doubt was to be pregnant, the experience of carrying these twins was clearly overrated from Rebecca's perspective. Verse 22, the babies jostled each other within her and she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. If you know any pregnant women, I'm sure you could find some at least who could identify with this experience. It's great to be pregnant. It's a wonderful gift from God. But nevertheless, living with another creature, growing and moving around inside you is something that takes a lot of getting used to. And in Rebecca's case, it was like the two kids were having a wrestling match in there. So she takes it up with God. What's going on, she asks. What's happening to me? And the Lord answers with the prophecy of verse 23. 
The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. God tells Rebecca that her twins will end up being the founding fathers of two nations, two people groups. And even that serves as another reminder that God has every intention of keeping his promise to Abraham. But then she's told that the two nations that will come from these two boys will be different. One will be stronger than the other. And the older boy's people will end up being servants of the younger boy's people. And when the birth actually happens, it seems that already the signs are there that this prophecy will come true. Out came Esau in verse 25, and he was very, very hairy, which is what the name Esau means. Basically, he looked like a rug. And then Jacob came out in verse 26 with his hand around Esau's heel, the text tells us. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but a heel must be one of the hardest parts of the body to get a good hold of. It's pretty impressive of Jacob to come out holding Esau's heel. My guess is that it was easier to get a grip because of all the hair. (laughs) And you know you're hairy when you've got a hairy heel. (laughs) Don't look now. Please wait till you get back to your room. (laughs) But the basic point here is that the seeds of future conflict were already... There And these lurking tensions between the two brothers were exacerbated as they grew up, the Bible tells us, by the respective favoritism of their parents. So verse 27, the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man staying among the tents. Isaac, father, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah, mother, loved Jacob. We're told Esau became a skillful hunter. Perhaps he got good at creeping up on animals and making them think he was one of them because of all the hair. Who knows? However he did it, his father had a soft spot for him because he liked to eat what Esau hunted. Jacob, on the other hand, was less of a wild man and just used to hang around at home, and so his mother, Rebecca, had a soft spot for him. Jacob was the kind of guy who would be given cookbooks for Christmas, and Esau was the kind of guy who would be given a new gun for Christmas. The really critical incident of this chapter takes place in verses 29 to 34. Jacob... Being the sensitive new age guy that he was, was at home cooking while Esau was out hunting. Esau is so hungry when he comes back in from hunting that he asks Jacob for some of the red stew he was cooking. But rather than simply giving him some, Jacob deviously sees an opportunity to capitalise here on his brother's weakness. So he makes a bowl of the stew conditional upon Esau giving up his birthright. His birthright, of course, was his privilege as the elder brother. It was the prospect of being the patriarch of the next generation. It meant he stood to inherit more than Jacob, perhaps a double share, or perhaps even everything his father owns. Either way, the firstborn son was in a special position, and Jacob could see that Esau had privileges that he was denied as the younger of the two. But he wanted what Esau had. So he connives here to see if Esau will part with it. And remarkably, Esau wanted what Jacob had. And he wanted it so bad that he was willing to part with his birthright. He was willing to exchange something much more precious, much more valuable in the long run because his immediate appetite was so great. He says in verse 32, look, I'm about to die. What good is the birthright to me? 
It's hard to know whether Esau just had a really bleak outlook on life or whether he was so hungry that he really thought he'd die if he didn't eat. But either way, he comes to regard the meal as being worth more to him than his birthright. But Jacob doesn't want to discover later that Esau had his fingers crossed or that he's eaten his, after he's eaten his good sense might return. So he presses him into a promise. In verse 33, Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. And then listen to the way verse 34 summarises. Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. Now let me say there's no doubt that Jacob is a ratbag in this chapter. He is, he is selfish, he is manipulative and opportunistic in the most sinister way. I don't think we're meant to see him as the good guy here by any stretch of the imagination. But I do want you to notice that the chapter refuses to paint Esau merely as a victim. In fact, the emphasis of the chapter is more on Esau's foolishness than Jacob's cunning. Esau has allowed his values and desires to become profoundly distorted. But he has also acted upon those distorted desires. And then, having acted on them, it seems from this final verse that he walks away from the incident fairly unconcerned. The matter-of-fact way that the chapter finishes underlines the deep brokenness of his thinking. He got up and left really doesn't seem to phase Esau that he has just exchanged all the wealth and privilege of being the firstborn for a bowl of food. And it doesn't really matter how good that red stew was. Jacob could have been the Jamie Oliver of the ancient Near East and it really makes no difference. Esau has been an idiot here. No matter how good the food was, no matter how hungry he was, this exchange was not worth it. It was a huge mistake. And that's why the final sentence of the chapter fixes our focus on Esau's sin rather than Jacob's because it's Esau's colossal stupidity that the writer thinks we need to notice. Esau despised his birthright. Well, if we take a step back from this, what answers can we come up with to the question that we began with? Remember the question was, what explanation does this chapter give for the long-term differences and conflict between the nation of Israel and the nation of Edom? Well, I hope what's become obvious is that this chapter actually supplies two answers to that question. The two answers are different but related. The first answer is from God's perspective. The second answer is from the human perspective. How do we account for the differences and the conflict between the nation of Israel and the nation of Edom? The first answer is all about God's choice. The second answer is all about Esau's foolishness. But we'll come back to the second answer in a moment. Let's think about that first answer for a few minutes. Because the first answer is about the prophecy God uttered before these two boys were even born. Verse 23, the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. The first answer is that they're different because God decided they would be different. He intended in his irresistible sovereignty that from these 
Two children would come, two nations, and he intended that one nation would end up being the servant of the other. He intended that the descendants of Jacob would be his chosen people, his treasured possession, but that the descendants of Esau would end up falling under his judgment. That's the first answer. It's about the way God's own will affects the future, the way that God's will affects human history. Now, that's not an answer we'd come up with if God didn't reveal it so openly. But it's the first answer that Genesis chapter 25 gives. And the Bible teaches us that this is the way God operates. What we see here is a pattern of how God's will affects all of human history. This chapter offers us a pattern of divine choice, a pattern which the Bible reiterates repeatedly. This is what's called in theological textbooks the doctrine of election or or sometimes referred to as predestination. I'm well aware that this doctrine, this idea of predestination is controversial in Christian circles. I want to suggest to you tonight that it's controversial more because some people don't like it than because it's open to interpretation. See, some controversial issues amongst Christians are controversial because the Bible itself can be difficult to interpret. Take something like infant baptism, for example. I can understand why Christians with differing views on the wisdom of baptising children of believing parents could both arrive at their conclusions from the Scriptures. It's an area of quite legitimate biblical debate from my perspective. And some people would like to suggest that the issue of predestination is a bit like that. But frankly, I don't think it is. It's not a controversial issue because it's not easy to work out what the Bible is actually teaching about this topic. The Bible speaks of God's sovereign will in choosing people repeatedly and clearly. The Bible itself asserts and develops the doctrine of election with great clarity, in my view. So it seems to me that the reason for the controversy has more to do with the fact that people find the doctrine confronting or because they feel uncomfortable with it. But people's discomfort, I want to say, is often a product of the fact that it's not a doctrine that's well understood. Because it seems to me and to many other Christians down through history that the doctrine of God's election is actually a wonderful doctrine. It's a doctrine that ought to humble us and which ought to fill our hearts with deep gratitude to God. Because what the Bible's really saying when it talks about divine choice is that we are saved by grace and grace alone. The reason many people feel uncomfortable about it is because there's a part in all of us that that wants to hang on to the idea that the people who are blessed by God are the people who in some way deserve to be. Not necessarily because they're really good people, but perhaps just because they had the intelligence to recognise the truth when they heard it or because they had the wisdom to submit to God when he asked them to. But what the Bible teaches us is that none of those things are ultimately true. We might be good. We might have intelligently acknowledged the truth. We might have wisely submitted. But none of those things are the basis of the welcome we receive from God. We don't deserve God's blessing for any of those reasons. God's blessing comes to us by grace Alone, not not because of anything we've done, but because God chose to bless us out of his 
sheer mercy, his sheer kindness. Those of us who are saved by God are saved by his undeserved love, all grace. And this is the point that the Apostle Paul makes when he talks about Jacob and Esau in Romans chapter 9. We read that a little earlier. Paul says that God chose Jacob to receive his blessing, but not Esau. And that that choice of Jacob was a pattern of the way he always operates. And it's a pattern which reminds us of what the basis of our salvation is and isn't. Let me just read a couple of verses again from Romans chapter 9. Let me read verses 10 to to 12. The Apostle Paul writes, Not only that, he's thinking about Genesis 25 here, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. How was it that Jacob was ultimately blessed and not Esau? Paul says it wasn't by works. God wasn't at this point taking into account Esau's stupidity, which we'll look again at in a moment, but by him who calls. It wasn't because Jacob was more deserving or more naturally inclined or because God likes cookbook people rather than gun people. It wasn't because he was more industrious than Esau. It wasn't by works. He didn't merit it at all. It was by the call of God. And Paul's saying the fact that God made this call before either of them were even born is the clincher. If they were still in the womb when this was decided, then it can't have been because God saw something in Jacob's life that made him love him, not like his father on earth. It was before he breathed his first breath. So it could only be by grace, by the free and irresistible call of God. See what Paul's saying? He's saying it's the doctrine of election that convinces us once and for all that salvation is by grace and grace alone. This is why it's a wonderful doctrine. If God didn't choose people before they were even born, then the door is left open for the possibility that there's something about the way they've lived on earth that attracts God to them. But if God chooses people before they even breathe a breath on the earth, then that door is closed. There's no possibility that the blessing of God falls upon people since they deserve it. This is the way God operates. And if it's the way God operated with Jacob and Esau, then it's also the way he has operated with you and me. And Paul would say to us, if you find yourself sitting here tonight as a Christian person who has accepted the truth and who has wisely submitted to God, then that is only because God called you to. You are in this blessed position by grace alone, just as Jacob was. And if you find yourself in heaven one day, that will only be because God in his freedom and his sovereignty and his gracious love chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. And if that's true, then you, like me, will have nothing to boast about. But instead, you'll have an eternity of praise to offer to him for his kindness. This is a humbling truth. certainly humbles me. But it's a truth that ought to turn our hearts to God again in grateful thanks now and forever.
And Genesis chapter 25 reminds us of that because it's the first answer that Genesis chapter 25 gives to our question. The second answer Genesis chapter 25 gives is this. How do we account for the differences and the conflict between the nation of Israel and the nation of Edom? Esau was a fool. It's important that the first answer comes first, isn't it? But this is the second answer. See, whilst God's gracious call on Jacob's life is a very real and fundamental answer to the question, this too is a real answer. It's not as if Jacob didn't deserve his fate in the same way that any who come under God's judgment deserve their fate. In fact, we all do as we know. But Genesis 25 explains the diverse fortunes of Israel and Edom in part at least by pointing to the stupid decision that Esau made the day his appetite got the better of him. It was at that moment that Esau traded in the blessing of his father and at the same time, the blessing of God. Esau exchanged something very precious in order to satisfy a short-term hunger. And in that way, his foolishness also serves as a pattern because he's not the only person in history to make that kind of decision, that kind of exchange. And that's why the second key place where the New Testament refers to Genesis chapter 25 is in Hebrews. And uh, Hebrews refers to Esau's foolishness. The, The letter of Hebrews, in case you haven't read it recently, is all about the danger of Christians trading in their spiritual inheritance for something else. It's written to warn Christians not to turn away from Jesus to anything or anyone else. And so Esau is a perfect illustration of the point that the author is making because for a single meal, he sold his inheritance rights. And in that moment, he secured his fate forever. And the author of Hebrews exhorts us not to be like Esau. Let me read you a couple of verses. Hebrews chapter 12 Again, we've got Genesis chapter 25 in view here. Hebrews 12, verses 16 and 17. The author says, See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. There's a story from ancient history that I have read recently of an army besieging a city and depriving its people of access to the water that they used to get from the river that was just outside the city walls. And eventually the besieged people crack and they surrender to their enemy in order that they might drink. So thirsty had they become. And history records that after drinking from the river, one of the surrendered soldiers turned to his friends and said, O comrades, for what a little pleasure have we lost an incomparable good. That moment he realised how foolish they had been. It dawned on him what a foolish exchange had been made. They had surrendered their whole city and all its people and all its riches for a drink and having drunk the water it was all of a sudden clear how empty he felt inside his good sense returned but before that moment I want you to understand this about Genesis 25 tonight he couldn't see it 
so too with Esau. So driven was he by his desperate appetite that he couldn't see the worth of what he was throwing away. And most tragically in Esau's case, he doesn't even seem to see it once it's done. And Hebrews reminds us of Esau because we too are capable of a similar foolishness and a similar blindness. It's possible that we can become so driven by a desperate appetite that we can't see the worth of what we're throwing away. And I've seen that happen. Maybe you have too. I've seen Christians with an appetite for success and recognition who slowly but surely trade off time in church, time in the Bible, time in good relationships for time in the office and at the computer. And in the end, they've, they've lost interest in Christ altogether and they, they can no longer see the value of what they're throwing away. They can't see how foolish they've become. And I've seen Christians with an appetite for intimacy who over time would prefer a relationship with someone who doesn't love Christ to being single. And after a while, their own love for Christ has waned and diminished until they've lost interest in Christ altogether and they can no longer see the value of what they're throwing away. They can't see how foolish they've become. And I've seen Christians with an appetite for sex who've chosen sexual immorality rather than Christian purity because they desperately want to feed their appetite more than they want to please Jesus. And it's interesting, don't you think, that the writer of Hebrews mentions sexual immorality in the same breath as he mentions Esau. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. I've seen people who've ended up losing interest in Christ altogether and they can no longer see the value of what they're throwing away. They can't see how foolish they've become. And what's most terrifying about that is the blindness that comes with the foolishness. We're not talking here about people who can see what they're doing and yet do it anyway. These are people who are giving up on Christ and they don't know it. They might even be telling themselves or others that that's not what's happening, but, but it is what's happening and they just can't see it anymore. They can't see it because they're in the grip of an appetite that has blinded them. They're in the grip of a desire that has distorted their values, that swallowed up their desire to please Christ. And so I have to ask you tonight, are you, is it, Is it possible that you're in the grip of a blinding appetite? Is it possible that your desires have become distorted? Is it possible that you're throwing away Christ and you don't even realise you're doing it? Is it possible you're as foolish as Esau? See, what Esau did made sense to him. At that moment, it seemed to him like the obvious choice to make. That is the really scary thing about all of this. And it may seem that way to you. It may seem like the relationship is worth pursuing, that the success and the recognition really is the most valuable goal, that the sex is too good to pass up. But it's not. 
it doesn't matter how good the relationship is, how much success you might have, how much recognition comes your way, how great the sex might be. It's not worth it. It's not. It's not worth as much as Christ. And what seems to you like a sensible compromise looks to God and looks to your honest Christian friends like you're being as stupid as Esau was. Because the Christ who lived for you, who bled and died for you, who was raised again for you, who lives to intercede for you and to direct your life into joy and holiness, that Christ is worth more than anything or anyone. And you'd be an idiot to trade him in. You'd be stupid to exchange him for anything. He is your spiritual birthright by grace. He is your eternal inheritance. Brothers and sisters, don't do it. Don't do it now. Don't do it ever. The foolishness of Esau stands in history like a lighthouse to warn us to steer clear of these rocks, these rocks that are all around us, that the evil one loves us to sail near, that the world constantly invites us to flirt with. Esau's profoundly foolish moment is recorded for us that we might allow ourselves to be asked this painfully searching question. What do we desire? And do we desire our inheritance? Do we desire Christ and loyalty to him more than all else? Or have we come to desire something or someone more than him? We must pray that God would reform in us our distorted desires so that we would value Christ as we ought. We must pray that God would give us eyes to see the cheapness of all that seems precious when we're seduced. And we must all pray that because there's not one of us who's immune from these dangers. For some of us, the moment of decision is now. And if that's you, I urge you to choose now. Don't waste another minute. Choose well. But for the rest of us, there will be a moment of decision or many moments perhaps to come. And so our prayers for ourselves and for each other are vital. Let me finish. If you've been listening this evening, I hope you'll go to bed tonight with two prayers to pray. Firstly, a prayer of humble thanks that the God who blesses people is the God who chooses and calls people. And if we have been called, then we have no one to thank but him. We owe all to his grace. The Lord said to her, two nations in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. And secondly, a prayer for spiritual insight to see clearly what we have come to desire and that God by his spirit might correct our foolish desires for worthless things and that 
His Spirit might produce in us an appetite for the Lord Jesus that will be unmatched by all other appetites, now and always. Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. I want to give you a moment to reflect privately and then I'll lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are reminded again this evening by Holy Scripture that those like Jacob, like us, find ourselves clothed in your blessing, have been so clothed because of your gracious hand on us before a breath was breathed. And we are deeply humbled by this truth. Grant us wisdom to cherish this doctrine and grant us the sweet taste of it that we might treasure your unmatched kindness towards us. And treasuring that grace, Father, we also pray that you might teach us to find the taste of other things less sweet. That our appetite for your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we have life, might transcend and transform all other appetites. That we might spend ourselves gladly in his service all our days and spend our eternity praising you for your mercy to us in him. In Jesus' name, amen.